0: that we would understand how the tabernacle is a picture for us to see the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray today you'd give us just help in understanding this visual. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, today we would have a greater understanding of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that the hope of everyone in this room would be centered on Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You got your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. This morning, we're going to try to make it a good little ways because this section operates as a unit, and we're going to try to do it that way. This morning, we're going to look at a message entitled, The Supreme High Priest. The Supreme High High priest. And what we're going to try to do under that is we're going to try to differentiate between the limitations of the old covenant and the superiority of the new. A lot of different ways we could break down this outline. Uh, Can you relate with me? I remember growing up, I would be in Chattanooga, and before I could drive back in those days where I was about 13, mom would have to go to the store. And when she would go to the store, I would usually sit in the car. And there would be days where it's, it feels like it, uh, it, it does right now. It's really hot. Uh, last night, I, I got this chance to see my sister and my brother-in-law. And we were in Chattanooga last night and uh, just walking. I was, um, it was unbelievable how hot it was. So hot. And, and I would sit in the car, and that sometimes was the best place to take a nap it's hot. I mean, it's like, uh, don't leave me in there for more than three hours. I may not make it out, but for 15 or 20 minutes, I mean, you can snooze in a hot car. And I was out, and I remembered I was sort of just sitting there completely clueless. Often in a car, I'm completely clueless. I guess I'm clueless often, but uh, this lady came up, and uh, this lady was in our church, and she scared me half to death. Her name was Sandy. She had two kids, Brenda and Tommy. And Sandy was with Brenda, and she came up, and I mean, I just didn't understand it. I mean, don't go up to a car when someone's in it and just look at them. And she did, and I jumped, and she looked at me, and she goes, Stephen Barber. She goes, you know why you're jumping, don't you? And I said, why? And she goes, because you got a dirty conscience. (laughs) You got a guilty conscience. You don't jump like that unless you got a guilty conscience. And I was thinking, no, it's because you scared me after death. But, but she's funny, and she was having a lot of fun with me. She worked with the youth, and, and I always remembered that because in this section today, we're dealing with the insufficiency of the old way to remove guilt. And where do we feel guilt? Where do we recognize guilt? Inwardly, it's in our conscience. And it's only the new covenant that could cleanse and set free a guilty conscience. It's only the new covenant that could purify a conscience. Some of you are with us today and, and you may not even understand the gospel fully. Maybe you're, you're, you're really curious and you're thinking, I just want to be set free from the prison that I'm in, from the guilt that I feel, from the condemnation that I deal with. And, and I want you to see today, if that happens to apply to you, that there's hope and there's freedom through Jesus Christ, and that he loves us so much that through his wisdom, he goes to great lengths to demonstrate the freedom that he brings. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Starting today with the limitations of the old covenant, as we look at The supreme high priest. And as we look at the limitations of the old covenant, what the way that I understood this to be breaking down here is we're gonna see basically three aspects underneath the limitations. We're gonna look at the furniture of the tabernacle, we're gonna look at the sections of the tabernacle, and we're gonna look at the problem that it brings. The the, the furniture, the sections and the problem that we see. So right off the bat, the furniture of the tabernacle. Let's read together Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 5. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. The tabernacle. The tabernacle is the portable tent of meeting. Uh, We see so many chapters. Uh, If I heard correctly in one resource I was looking at, up to 50 chapters in the Bible was stated, deal with the covenant. And if you think about that, that's phenomenal as to the amount of chapters that are certain things are dealt with. This is a very important visual. It is, you know, this is a drawing here of the tabernacle. It would move portably in the wilderness. When we think of the tabernacle, we see on the outside, inside that fence, before you get inside, you're looking at the outer court. And inside, as we'll notice in a moment, we're dealing with the holy place and we're dealing with the most holy place. And so when we look at this tabernacle, remember this was so significant, little did they know that God intended a visual to be with the people because God was intending to literally draw them a picture of who was coming to save their sins. It was a visual for the people of Israel. We look at another diagram here, and you see another perspective of how that inner area was broken down into two sections. We look at this passage, and the first area that we see mentioned is we start to deal with the holy place in verse two for the tent. Notice verse one. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Isn't it interesting? Because whether it's the first covenant or whether it's the reformed covenant, the reformation that we're gonna see about mentioned in this passage, the second covenant, the better covenant, the new covenant, we see that God gives regulations for worship. That's important. It's a good reminder. In the old covenant, there was a prescribed way that the people had to approach God. One of the biggest problems with progressive Christianity is that it completely forgets this principle, that God has defined how he desires to be worshiped. And when we move outside of the revealed will of God in his word, what may feel progressive and modern and contemporary to us, if it moves away from the standard of what he has revealed, it is now outside of the truth. But God gave a very clear prescription, a very clear way that they were to operate. And in the first section called the holy place, he mentions here three pieces of furniture. We typically refer to the the, inside the tabernacle, all of these as, as pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. The first one was the lampstand, The second one was the table and the bread of the presence. And then we'll see more as we move into the next verse. But let's look at the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. When we think about the the lampstand, it was to be kept burning continually. I was looking up resources about the tabernacle. And this particular one says, it was to be kept burning continually, giving light to the holy place. The second article of furniture in the holy place was the table for the bread of presence. This bread was baked fresh every week and only the priests were allowed to eat of it as was holy as well. And and there was 12 pieces of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So when we think about the lampstand, we're thinking of literally the priest in this area And I like this visual here. You basically are dealing with, before you get to the curtain, on the opposite side of the curtain is that second section known as the most holy place that was only entered one time of year on the Day of Atonement, and only the high priest could go into that area. In the other area, the holy place, priests could come in and operate and do the duty of the priest. And we see that the lampstand is there, another table, the the, the one I just mentioned, the the table of of bread. And so we, we continue here and we read in verse three, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant. Now, as we get into this area, one thing that is interesting and a lot of people have been baffled by is the fact that the author of Hebrews puts the golden altar of incense in the holy of holies. But as you look at this visual, when we read the Old Testament, we see that the golden altar of incense is actually not in the most holy place. It's in the holy place. And so people say, what in the world? Well, There's a lot of thoughts as to what he was doing because it's clear that he was very, very well educated as to the operation of the tabernacle, as we can see as we go through the details that he's giving in Hebrews. And the thought here is the close connection that the altar of incense had with the Holy of Holies. In Leviticus, it says, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord... And two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. And, and the next verse, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. So a lot of scholars have said, well, you know, it appears that what he's doing here." is the close connection that the golden altar of incense had with the holy of holies. He basically is demonstrating that in the way that he puts it in the holy place. I think that's a very interesting thought. And we know that all scripture is inspired by God, and thus this is God's intention for us to have to understand the theological foundation and the theological fulfillment for these pieces of furniture. So we see all this and and now I want you to think about the golden altar of incense. We see the golden altar of incense as depicted by this little diagram and another one here, um, the, the top of that. And when we look at this, we're dealing with the fact that this was offered continuously, this incense before the Lord. It's fascinating because it says here special incense was to be burned each morning and evening as an offering to the Lord. The holy place was set apart as holy because it was a special representation and reminder of the presence of God. Another thought that some scholars give is that that incense would flow and you would not be able to miss that incense that was burning into the area of the holy of holies. So so the The incense would would carry over in there, and the connection that the altar had with the most holy place seems to be his intent. So we look at verse 4, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which, now the Ark of the Covenant, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. A depiction of this, that in that here he mentions these elements being inside the ark of the covenant. Verse five, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So all of these, as we'll see in a moment, we'll see some parallels of the fulfillment that Christ brings. Because I hope you're seeing that none of these details are by accident. And now think about it, if, if you've got, you remember back in the day, all you old timers, the, uh, the flannel boards, when you're a kid, you know, in Sunday school, you got the flannel boards and you got all these pictures. And, and, and the teacher, I had Mr. Dittman at Brainerd Baptist in sixth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. And Mr. Dittman was the pro at the flannel board. And he had all these pictures, and he put them up there, and the kids would be like, whoa, that's pretty cool. And we're looking at it. But think about it. We're looking at a section of Scripture where we're looking at the wisdom of God, where we're seeing that God used the tabernacle as a visual to help the people understand the fulfilling work of the great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see these. But second of all, I want you to think about this, the limitations of the old. We see the furniture of the tabernacle and we see the sections of the tabernacle. Now we know there's the outer court. We know there's the holy place. We know there's the most holy place. But when we get in verse 2, into verse 5, what do we see? The two main places he's seeking to demonstrate is the holy place and the most holy place. There's two sections. Now, what is it about the sections that illustrates the limitations of the Old Covenant? Well, one, there's only one that can go into the most holy place. And who is that? That's the high priest. Verse six, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But then notice verse seven, but into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You can think with me for a second. I mean, it's hard to imagine, but think with me. You're looking at this tent, you are, if you looked at a diagram of the 12 tribes literally lived in different areas around the tent of meeting. And if you were outside the tent of meeting in, as a people of Israel, What's one common thing you're constantly aware of? You're constantly aware of the fact, does it give you a reminder of how close you are to God or of the distance you have to God? Now, in some ways, I guess the first pop in your mind could be, well, the closeness of God because there's a tent of meeting. But wait a minute, does it reveal more to you your sinfulness or your freedom of access? that tent was designed not only for the presence of God to dwell, but as a reminder to the people of the necessity that their sin be dealt with through the shedding of blood. And that curtain, that veil was a constant reminder to the people that they did not have freedom to go into that area of the most holy place because if they did in a way that was unworthy and only the high priest could go through, they would be killed. It's a reminder of their distance. It's a reminder of their separation. It's a reminder and a revealer of their sin a reminder of their need. Now think about this. If we just focus on the tabernacle, we begin to go, wait a minute, but look at the contrast through the blessed good news of the gospel. I hope you're seeing this because what you're seeing is you're seeing a object lesson and we see in Galatians that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. It leads us to the gospel. It allows us to see who he is. You see, in the sections of the tabernacle, and this leads us to the problem here. The problem is there's a lack of access. There's a lack of ability. A lack of ability, what do you mean a lack of ability? They have no ability. The covenant, the old covenant, had no ability to cleanse the conscience. The old covenant had no ability to do an internal work. It could allow one to be ritually clean outwardly, but it could not do an internal work of surgery on the heart. So there's a lack of access. There's a lack of ability. There's a lack of transformation. There's no transformation taking place through this old system. It's needed. It's right. It's prescribed by God. But we have to understand its purpose, and we have to see its fulfillment. So we go into here to the fact of it it can't produce what it demands. And so even the mediator, which in this case would have been the high priest for the people, he's flawed. He's flawed. I mean, look at verse seven, but into the second only the high priest goes and he, but once a year and not without what? Without taking blood which he offers for himself. Why would he need to offer it for himself? Because he was a sinner. He was a sinner. And he was also offering it for who? For the unintentional sins of the people. This gets more and more fascinating as we go through this. He he goes into the second section once a year with blood, offered for himself, offered for the unintentional sins of the people, and what is this all about? It says here that the old system provided a way for forgiveness for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Now, this is, uh, you've probably heard of like, you know, the things that you should have done that you didn't do, is sin, the things that you willfully went against God's word or sin. You got sins of omission, sins of commission. But then now you've got another category almost. You've got this ignorance area things you weren't really aware of, which you could fall up under the other category, I guess. But, but the problem is this, this is baffled scholars too. Some say, well, on the, in the outer court, there was sacrifices, but there's ignorance as to how we are falling short. Now think about that. You, you may be with us today and you're thinking, you know what, this is great. I, and, and you've never seen your need. You're thinking, I, I love the tabernacle. I love looking at pictures at church. A lot of pictures today. Like, this is great. But maybe, just maybe, you're here, and if it all came down to it, if you could define why you see yourself in heaven one day, it's because you think to yourself, I'm not, I'm not a bad person. I'm pretty good, actually. I'm pretty good. I, I hadn't had a traffic ticket in 20 years. I'm pretty nice. People like me. They respect me. I make good money. I got high positions. I'm not a bad person. My kids make good grades. They don't don't embarrass me often. You get it. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Now think with me. Here's the problem, though. The problem is this. We can perceive that we're doing something right and be doing it completely wrong, right? Because think about it. On the Day of Atonement, there were unintentional sins of the people that still had to be dealt with. Now think about it. You may be thinking, wait a minute, I've got it right. You remember Jesus when he's dealing with the religious leaders and he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, he who looks upon a woman with lust in his heart is guilty of committing adultery. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you that he who hates his brother in his heart is guilty of committing murder. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean? You see what I'm saying? It's like, I've not done that. I'm doing this right. But we cannot perceive the holiness of God. We cannot understand in our own wisdom the depths and the majesty of who God is in his character. And I pray that you would see if you're here and you're even tempted to think that self-righteousness or self-works actually does something, I pray that this would just knock it down. It would knock it down. You go, oh no, we're in, we're in trouble going that route. We're in trouble because if if that means that we can't even understand the sinfulness we bring to the table, it demonstrates our need of a mediator, but not a mediator who's flawed, not a mediator who has to go into the tent as much as anything because of his own sin. What do we need? We need a sinless, we need a mediator who's not only fully God, but fully man. I'll tell you, this is one of the areas, the side note over here is like, if you get lost on this insignificant Christology, this opens the door for the cults. Jesus, Mormons say, is not fully God. Well, here's the problem. Hebrews says, if he's not fully God, he's an inadequate mediator. And then others would say in and in the historical, we go back in the history of the church and we look at the errors of Christology back in 4th century, 5th century, 6th century. And you know what some of them were saying back even early as Gnosticism, Colossi was writing to the people in Colossians as like a preview of what was coming. And what did they deny? They denied the humanity of Jesus. Well, what happens if you deny the deity of Christ? You're in trouble. If you deny the humanity of Christ, you're in trouble. Our situation is so bleak, but that gives us the opportunity to see the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus. So we come through here and we see the furniture, its sections, its problem. But let's keep moving here. The biggest problem, really, that you get it is verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Wow. You see what he's doing? He's saying as long, I think in layman's terms, you could say as long as that, tent, as long as that curtain's still there, you're in trouble as long as you have this separation between the regular priesthood and the high priesthood, as long as you have these rules, as long as you have this approach, it's not yet opened. The way into the holy places is not yet opened. It's not yet opened. Opened. Now, here's the question I pray we would ask. I pray you're asking in your mind, what is it that opens the way into the holy places? Only the work of King Jesus. And where we begin to go with this, where we begin to go is, is we see that th- this is just insufficient. Look at verse 9. In verse nine, he says, uh, which is symbolic for the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now notice that you can people get hung up on a lot of things. You can focus on church attendance. You can, you can follow my, one of my relatives who would say that the only way you can have full confidence is assurance of sins is if you believe in baptismal regeneration and you can attend the church of Christ he goes to, but that will not release your conscience. It's not ritual. It's not ceremony. It's not doing something. And when we look at this, you start to go, wait a minute. It really isn't what we bring to the table. It's only what Christ Jesus does for us in our place. Because why? The arrangements, the gifts, and the sacrifices that are offered cannot. That's a zero with the lid kicked off. Forget it. They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So what do we need? I wanted to go a lot further today, but I'm going to start landing it right now. (laughs) I want you to go back to uh, Jeremiah 31 with me. Now think about this. I love it because he's just quoted there. But go to Jeremiah 31, and and in Hebrews 8, verse 8, down, what does he say there? Look at this. He quotes out of Jeremiah 31, and he speaks of, now think, if if there is only an outward purification that can somewhat be understood through all of what's happening in the Old Covenant, what do we need? We need something that's going to deal with the heart of the problem. Look at, like, We need something that is going to deal with the main issue. And what do we see in verse 31? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And what was that covenant like? Everything we're reading in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. 1 through 8. We need something greater than the covenant that was made with the fathers of the people in the day of Jeremiah. We need something greater. And he goes on. And what does he say? He goes on and he says, "...for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts." And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Go to Ezekiel real quick again. We did this last week. But go to Ezekiel. Let's look one more time, because I want you to see where this is setting up for next time. In Ezekiel 36, we read, starting in verse 26, or verse 25, think about it. If we have dirty consciences, if we have guilty consciences, what do we need? We need God to cleanse them. But how are we going to do it? Because we could say, wait a minute, that's not going to happen. Because you saw the religious people all through the Old Testament. They did everything according to the, the way that was prescribed. What do they need? What do they need? What does it take? There's a covenant that God is promising. And in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You see, when we go back to Hebrews now, I want you to focus on this word as we prepare to look next time. In chapter nine, the word that gets so exciting, we get into verse nine, look at verse 10, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of what? Reformation. And praise be to God through Jesus Christ. There's a reformation that takes place, one that frees people from their guilt, one that frees people from their filth and cleanses them to be what God intended them to be. I, I uh, Yesterday, a few days ago, I, I'd found out that uh, some guy, you know, like uh, you grow up and you People you're close to, you, as you get older and you get married, you often don't see the people you love a lot. You know they're friends and they live in other places. And there's two guys I love dearly, Jimmy and Rick DeYoung. And uh, I knew their dad was sick in the hospital, and he was a really close friend of my dad. And it was weird because uh, it, it just shook me and it just bothered me. And uh, I've been hearing reports, and he looked like he was doing better. He looked like he was doing better. And I got a message yesterday, and and I knew that, because when i had lost Dad, they were reaching out to me, and I could tell it was almost like you know, comfort others with the comfort you've received, and they sort of were leaning out because they were like, "You've been there," and they were like, "Man, uh, we're headed to the hospital, we're saying our goodbyes and and then and then one I mean just message after message it just hurt, broke, broke my heart, and then I was uh reading you know just through social media, I had a friend that I knew growing up, and uh this family's dad is uh, dying with leukemia. Looked on, uh, I looked on uh, something this morning, and uh, a guy that I knew in Chattanooga had a stroke, and, and the medicine that they gave him to treat the stroke, it, it supposedly caused other problems, but then that left them without any other medications to treat the stroke. He's 50 years old. I was thinking, man, and and I was looking at all that, thinking about my friends and thinking about the man that I loved so dearly growing up that that is now in heaven. And I was thinking about how fragile the flesh is. I was thinking about how fragile life is. And, And fragile people in fragile times need a capable and superior high priest. We need to, we've talked so much, I think, because of the reality of the pandemic over the last year and a half, we've contemplated our mortality in different ways, more than we probably have before. But again, I don't want you to lose sight of something. Do you realize that regardless of whether or not the pandemic affects you, your mortality rate is 100% sure? Sure. I feel like that, that one thing that can happen is we almost can start talking as if we are controlling our breath, if we are controlling the beat of our heart, if we are controlling all of our internal organs operating. It's as if people have taken self-responsibility to the point at which they've lost sight of the sovereign hand of God. And I say that to you not in any other reason, in any other way, but just to say our lives are fragile and one day we will meet our creator. And when we meet him, are you dependent on your own work? Are you dependent on the work of Hebrews chapter 9, the Lord Jesus Christ? Because his way is sure, it is not fragile, it is concrete, it is sufficient. So dear friends, as we leave today, I pray that we would understand the seriousness of the blessing that only Christ can bring us, that because of his work, our great high priest stands as our advocate, stands as our mediator, and stands ready not only to cleanse, ready to forgive but ready to welcome us in his presence. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for the truth of the insufficiency of the old way. I pray, Lord, that it would thrill us as we think about the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that because Jesus came to this earth as the God-man, and because Jesus offered up himself once for all, not as a flawed sacrifice, but as the perfect sacrifice, that through his death, we can be made whole, we can be made clean, we can be fully forgiven. Lord, I pray that all of our hope would be upon Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that he's the only one that can free the guilty conscience. He's the only one that can cleanse it. I pray, oh God, today our hope would rest on him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Peace.